Would you open your copy of the Word of God, please, back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll be reading and meditating together on verses 10 to 17. As we begin this morning, let's start with everyone's favorite exercise, a little bit of self-examination, favorite thing to do. Examine your heart, examine your life. What would change in your life if Jesus helped your unbelief? What would change in your life if Jesus helped your unbelief? We think of that man who met Jesus and Peter, James, and John after they came down from the mountain after Jesus had been transfigured. His glory had been unveiled. He had a son that was possessed by a demon. This uh, demon was doing him great harm. And there was nothing that this man or the disciples who were gathered there could do to to deliver this little boy from this demon. And this man saw Jesus coming and he cried out to him, If you can, have compassion on us and help us. If you can. And Jesus responded, if you can, everything is possible to him who believes. And the man cried out one of those short, sweet, famous prayers of the scriptures. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. What would change in your life if Jesus helped your unbelief? Is there some service that you have yet to do because you don't believe? Is there gospel witness not getting out because the faith isn't in you? Is there sin in your life that remains undefeated because you don't have the faith to challenge that sin? In the passage before us today, The disciples fail to believe. Jesus hands them the ball of service and they they fumble it. Jesus helps them. He helps their unbelief. Now, there were these mitigating circumstances, of course, for their unbelief. Completely unexpectedly and rather tragically, John the Baptist had just been executed. That was not, in their plan, that was not something that was going to happen. So there were these mitigating circumstances that might explain, or we might think excuse, this unbelief. But in truth, there is nothing that excuses, that rationalizes, or justifies unbelief in the least. And I want to urge you this morning never to come to terms with it. Don't come to terms with the unbelief in your life. See, Here are mitigating circumstances. There is pain. Okay, you're going to go through pain in your life at some time. If you haven't or you're not right now, you're going to have pain. And when pain comes into your life to take up residence for a while, unbelief is going to come with it and want to reside, take up a room in your heart and say, this is just a temporary rental. When pain leaves, then I'll leave. We are tempted to shake hands. Come to terms with unbelief and say, okay, you can stay for a while. There are these mitigating circumstances that give you room in my life. 
don't come to terms with unbelief. God says, believe in my son. Unbelief says, yeah, but, yeah, but, there is these, there is this influence from those who are around me, from the unbelievers around me, or there is this, uh, just constant pressure on me because of difficult circumstances, or there are these obstacles to overcome, or there's simply the, the, the native spiritual poverty and inability within me that all explain my unbelief. So we excuse, we rationalize, and we justify. We come to terms with the unbelief in our lives and we say, yeah, but there's this thing. Don't come to terms with unbelief. If Jesus was calling me to believe in me as the world is always telling me to do, I could defend myself to Christ. And I could make a very sound case for not believing in me. And you could too. We are all weak and small. We're powerless. We're poor. That's who we are. Believe in myself is complete and utter nonsense. But God does not command you to look down deep within you for some kind of strength. He is not commanding you to believe in you. Believe in me. He is commanding you to believe in him. And Jesus never has and he never will meet his match. He has never failed and he never will fail. He is the almighty God who is eternally with and for his people. This is the one that we are commanded to believe in. And we have every reason to do so. The worst thing about unbelief is that it is against God. That's what makes it so horrible. That's what makes it such a grave sin. That's why you should never come to terms with it and never be satisfied to say, yeah, but, when God commands you to do something. So you stay still and you say, yeah, but, I can't. There are these circumstances. Don't come to terms with it because unbelief is against God. It robs Him of glory. The second worst thing about unbelief is that it robs other people of good. It robs God of His glory and it robs others of good. Faith is supernatural. You look at, say, Hebrews 11, like we read earlier, and in a lot of ways, faith is even heroic. Unbelief is just lame. It really is. Do you ever look into the Scriptures, say, for example, the story of Jonah, and you see that man running the other way, to Tarshish when God has sent him to Nineveh. And he's on the run. He's, I'm going to get away from God. I am not going his way. I'm doing my thing because he is afraid and because he doesn't believe and because he hates the people that God is sending him to and so on. But nobody ever says, man, Jonah is really cool. I so admire that guy. I want to be like him. When I grow up, I want to be like Jonah. Nobody admires Jonah sitting outside the gates of the city of Nineveh, feeling sorry for himself and wishing that fire would come down from heaven and burn up the city. Nobody says, man, that that unbelief in Jonah is just awesome. 
I wish that I was like that. So those are my three quick reasons before we get into this text and pray for never coming to terms with unbelief because it is against God. It robs Him of glory. It is against others because it robs them of good. And thirdly, and much less down the line, obviously, unbelief is just lame. All right, let's look into Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. And then we'll pray. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. Which they didn't mean. They spoke that rather sarcastically. Verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 58 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as very needy, weak, and desperate people. And I do pray, Father, that the, the ground of everyone's heart here would be plowed up to remove any obstruction from hearing your word, any obstruction that would keep them from receiving your word as the truth, the revelation of God. Would your word, please, by your spirit, fall on good ground today? We cry out, Father, like that desperate Father so long ago. We cry out to you. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help us. Give to us, according to your grace in Christ, your Holy Spirit. Father, may I, according to your good pleasure, preach your word with power. And for your name, in Jesus I pray. Amen. The disciples, in verse 10 we see, had just returned from their mission. And Jesus, the Messiah, we also know, had just received word, and this is spelled out further in Matthew's and Mark's Gospels. Jesus has just received word that his relative John, who was his forerunner as the Messiah and his personal baptizer, had been beheaded. And so with that news and with the return of his disciples, Jesus saw fit to get away from the crowd and from the demands of ministry for a little while. And so Luke doesn't give us these detail, uh, this detail, but we know from the other accounts that they got into a boat and they sailed up the coast northeast to the vicinity of Bethsaida, to a desolate spot where they could again get away. The crowds learned of it, however. 
and they followed Jesus on foot. They went around the, the top edge of the Sea of Galilee, um, across this uh, place at the, the Jordan River. Um, and by the time that Jesus arrived at the landing place, the crowd was already there. And we actually, have you noticed that we see this a lot lately in the last couple of chapters with Jesus? Whenever Jesus lands on shore and gets out of the, the boat, there is someone or ones already there to, to meet him. And it's the same thing here. They are very eager to be with Jesus. And so they're waiting when he arrives. We know that from Mark's account, when Jesus sees this crowd of people, he sees them as a, a mass of helpless sheep without any shepherd to provide for them. And he is stirred within him with compassion for this needy people. And so as Luke says, he welcomes them. And he begins to proclaim to them the kingdom of God and to cure those who need healing. Well, as it turned out, as the day went on, the crowd got bigger. In fact, by the end of the day, the crowd had grown to massive proportions. And so the disciples decided that it would be best for them to send them away. They urge Jesus to send the crowd away because they say, we, we don't have lodging for them. We don't have food. Send them into the villages. Send them into the countryside. Let them fend for themselves. We can't do anything for them. Now, we don't know what exactly, certainly, was their motivation. But it's a little bit suspect here, I think. Are they really concerned for the lack of food? Or is this urgency really just masking a complaint about too many people? Are they really focused on too little food? Or are they bothered by too many people? And it's possible that they had the more selfish motive because they had been primed for a personal getaway with Jesus and it had been, there was this massive interruption to that. So their solution is send them away. Jesus, however, has a different solution. He said to them in verse 13, you give them something to eat. Now this is quite different from what we are used to. What we are used to seeing throughout the narrative of Luke in Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee is that the disciples are kind of in the background. They are They are witnesses to the ministry of Jesus. But now we are beginning to see Jesus drawing them into the ministry itself. They're not going to be merely gawking bystanders. They're not going to be merely witnesses. They are actually going to be, from here forward, participants in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he tells them again, you give them something to eat. And the disciples respond in verse 13. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Now we know from the other accounts that Andrew is the one who uh, brings this little boy to Jesus who has the lunch that he's been prepared. um, Five loaves of bread and two fish. We also know that Philip is the one who quickly calculates that it's going to take eight months worth of wages to provide food for all of these people. And that's why I said earlier that I think they say this rather sarcastically, this thing about unless um, 
unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. I don't think that they actually mean that sincerely. So they say, we have nothing more. We have no more than five loaves of bread and two fish. Let's not be too hasty to move on here. In fact, this is where I want to park for a little bit. Because this is unbelievable unbelief. I mean, it really is pathetic. Yes, there are mitigating circumstances. John the Baptist has just been executed. That is, That was not according to their plan of how things would go, and that was a tragic thing to happen. But this does not excuse, it does not rationalize or justify their unbelief. Now, on one hand, this unbelief is understandable because it is our nature to doubt. It is our nature to disbelieve. But this is also stunning unbelief because of what these men had just experienced. This is one of the benefits of consecutive, what we call expositional preaching, focusing on when it's consecutive, text by text, and getting the point of each and every passage. Because we have kept this in context, and we know, depending on how good your memory is, what happened in the the previous episodes. We started in chapter 8, verse 22, to look at these, um, over, over a couple days' time, these stunning displays of the power and the authority of Jesus. Remember, they were at sea, the disciples in Christ were at sea, and he wielded his divine power over the raging deep. He landed on shore, and he wielded that same power over the demonic horde. He went back across the lake, and when he landed, he was met by people who really desperately needed him. And so he wielded that power and that authority over the disease, and then even over death. That takes us from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to the conclusion of the chapter, verse 56. And then what was the first thing that we saw in the first two verses of chapter 9? Jesus sent out his disciples on a mission. And he took away from them everything human and earthly that they could possibly rely on for the completion of their mission. He said, no staff for you, no extra set of clothes for you, give me your money bag and give me your food. He emptied their hands of everything that they could possibly in an earthly sense, any human resource that they could trust in for the completion of their mission. And they were good with it. They were good with it. Why? Because as it says at the beginning of chapter 9, he gave to them his power and his authority. The power and authority that he had just wielded in these incredible displays, he gave to his apostles for the proclamation of the kingdom and for the curing of those who needed healing. It's awesome. There was no doubt that they could do what Jesus commanded them because they were given his power and his authority for themselves. Verse 10, they come back to Jesus and they recount in detail exactly the things that they had done. 
Jesus, you gave us power and you gave us authority and demons were scattering. There was one disease after another being cured and we could just see the, the, the disbelief of people's hearts melt away at the proclamation of your kingdom. This is what we were enabled to do by your power and your authority. Now Jesus is giving to them the next opportunity for ministry. He says, you feed them. And they start searching their pockets for loose change. They go through their money bags. They're looking around for the food. And they say, we have five loaves of bread and we have two fish and we have no more. No more. No more. That's insane. That is unbelievable unbelief. After just telling Jesus what they did by His power and authority, they start looking around for earthly supplies, human resources, to do what He called them to do. They come up with what they have, this measly little bit, and they say, we don't have anything else. This is all we have. Now I'm projecting here, imagining, but I can just see them. Why is He looking at us like that? What? This is all we got. And let's put ourselves in the position, okay? I mean, we would do this number. The old face palm, right? Are you guys kidding me? I just gave you power and authority to do this, and, and now you're telling me that this, uh, this lunch is all you have? You have no more? You have no more to, to do what I call you to do than this? You can't see past your empty pockets? Can you? Can you? Can I? Can you see past your empty pockets? In fact, we could switch that question. Can you see past full pockets? Can you see past it to Christ? And I'm using that in a, a literal way because let's be realistic. We don't know what the future holds and there may come to the, you may come to the point one day where your pockets are empty. You don't have anything left. And you really have to cry out in desperation. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't you see past your empty pockets? Don't you see who you have? You have no, no more than this? You have no more than this lunch? And I also say that not only in a uh, literal way, but in a metaphorical way as well. We are all empty-pocketed when it comes to spiritual capacity to do the things that Jesus commands us to do, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself to spread the word of the gospel to those who are yet in darkness, to obey the commandments of God. We're all spiritually barren. We're bankrupt. We don't have anything within us to, to give. Jesus doesn't say, believe in yourself, because we don't have anything to believe in. There's nothing worth believing in, in me. Can you see past your empty pockets? 
The disciples weren't. Not in this moment. They weren't. I want us to take another good, long, hard look into the glories of Jesus. Because I don't know anything else to help your and mine unbelief. I mean, do you know something else that will help your unbelief? It's, this is it. It's the looking into the glories of Christ. This is the cure. This is the help for our unbelief. I love it when others are sent back to the bench and Jesus has to step up to the plate. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus steps up to the plate. This massive crowd has gathered. 5,000. We know from the other accounts that that is counting men. So it doesn't include women and children. A massive crowd had gathered and Jesus instructs his disciples. Let's read verses 14 to 17 again. Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, I realize we have all heard this before. I mean, this is one of those first episodes that you hear about in the life of Jesus when you are, like, I think my dad used to say, knee-high to a grasshopper. I mean, we've heard this from way back, right? But let's not get numb to it. Let's realize the weight and the significance of it. When Israel, Israel was brought out of slavery in Egypt, it wasn't long before in the wilderness their, their food supply ran down to nothing. And they complained. God heard their bitter complaint and thus began a daily, for six days out of the week, food supply that would go on and on every week and every month and every year for the 40 years in which the people of Israel wandered. A food supply. I'd like to read to you, I should have asked you to turn there earlier, from uh, Psalm 73, Psalm 78, I mean. Psalm 78, I'm reading in verse, beginning uh, verse 13. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Can God... Spread 
a table in the wilderness? That was their doubt. And that is exactly what God did. Answer is, yes, He can. And He did for 40 years. So what has Jesus done in turning the five loaves of bread and the two small fish into a feast for thousands upon thousands of people? Jesus has done what only God can do. He has multiplied food in the wilderness for the hungry people of God. Israel woke up every morning, six out of the seven days at least, with their bread on the ground. And now Jesus has done the very same thing before their eyes. I am poor. And I am powerless. My spiritual cupboards are bare. My heart, spiritually speaking, is this desolate wilderness. But where there is a wilderness, God spreads a table. And I realize that that can sound kind of gushy, kind of uh, what have you. It, um, it can sound like something out of the prosperity gospel. Where there is a wilderness, God sp- You can see it on a poster, can't you? Where there is a wilderness, God spreads a table. But listen to what we are talking about. It's what He gives me to nourish my soul. And it's what He gives to me to strengthen me that is better than anything I have ever tasted. All of this has so much more significance than loaves of bread. This miracle is a sign. People, they need the supply of bread. But they need much more than this supply of bread. They need the supplier. They need not only the gift, much more they need the giver of the gift. And in the wilderness of our spiritually barren hearts, the Son of God is the table that the Father spreads for all who believe. God spreads a table in the wilderness. We're not simply talking about earthly material prosperity. We're talking about Jesus, God's Son. He is the table that God spreads in the wilderness of our hearts. And that's what I was reading earlier in the beginning of our worship service from John 6. And I want to read a selection again because it was after this miracle when Jesus had returned to the western side of the Sea of Galilee that He preached the significance of feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish. He said to them, and He says to you, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The bread of God is He who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Listen to what God 
says. It's not that you get the giver on one hand and his gifts on the other. That's not what he is saying like, okay, you get the best of both worlds, giver and gift. This is great. No, the giver is the gift. Jesus gives to us himself. How? How does he give to us himself? I want you to pick up on something. From Look back into the text. from And I can't pinpoint the uh, exact verse off the top of my head. But where he gathers the food, he looks up into heaven, he takes it, blesses it, and so on. Okay? I want you to pay attention to that part of the narrative. The biblical narrative, understand something, is crafted in such a way that the more you look into it, the more you see. The more you look, the greater your reward. Because Luke doesn't tell us, okay, these are the, this is the significance of this particular word choice. He leaves you that to discover for yourself as you meditate upon the word of God. So let's note something. The language that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use is very specific. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. And I would get you to repeat that after me, but whenever preachers do that, I just don't want to say anything. <laughs> I just say to myself, just get on with it. So I'll say it for you again, so you get it in your head. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. On the night of Jesus' last supper with his disciples, it was the yearly Passover meal. And there Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, which we'll celebrate in a moment. So the Bible uses this very similar, nearly identical language in Luke to, identical to the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Matthew and Mark use exactly identical language. But this is what the Bible says at the, the Last Supper. He took bread. He took and when he had given thanks, he blessed. He broke it and gave it to them. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. The significance of this cannot be missed. Jesus is telling us, Luke is telling us, that Jesus is giving us a sign in this miracle. He is the supply. He is the gift that we need. We need Christ, not merely the bread, not merely the fish. And this is what he said when he took and he blessed and he broke and he gave. He said, this is my body broken for you. After Jesus had risen on the third day of his burial, that Sunday morning, you recall from Luke that he met two of his disciples who were going down the road to Emmaus. He met them, he began to converse with them, and you remember that they weren't able to recognize their risen Lord. So, in the evening time, the two disciples stopped, and at their urging, Jesus stopped with them, and he stayed with them, and he sat down to table with them, and this is what the text says in Luke 24. He took the bread, and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. He took he blessed, he broke, he gave. Then it says, and their eyes 
were opened and they recognized him. Jesus is the table that the Father spreads for his children. Jesus is the bread broken and blessed and taken and given to his people. So I want to ask you, do you, like those two disciples, do you recognize Christ? Do you recognize him? Do you truly see him for who he is? You see, all of these accounts that we've been going over in Luke, I know these are the old, old stories that we've heard from day one. As soon as we got into Sunday school, we heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and raising the dead and so on. But I know what can happen to kids who are brought up in Sunday school. When they think of Jesus, they think of the flannel graph guy. He's the flannel graph guy. Do you recognize Christ for who he truly is? He is the exact imprint of his father's nature. He is God from before the mountains were brought forth. He is the eternal radiance of the Father's glory. That's who Jesus is. And the Father gave him, and Jesus gave himself to you. He gave himself to you. There is something I I, I want to tell you that I really struggled over this statement, but I came, I realized, I do believe this. I believe this. Jesus doesn't need me like I need oxygen. He does not need me like I need oxygen. But he wants me like I need oxygen. There is no measuring the love of God in Christ for his own. It is past knowledge. I am not saying that he would die without you. That would be him needing you like you need oxygen. But he would die to have you. That's wanting you like you need oxygen. And I think it's more than that, to be honest. I think it's, I say he wants you like you need oxygen. I think it's more than that because you're needing oxygen. That's human. It's human. But his wanting, that's divine. He gives himself to you. He gives himself to you like a vine gives life to the branch, like food gives life to the hungry. Do you know Jesus for who he is? Do you recognize him? He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. And he gave himself. Do you recognize him? There's one last thing that I want to touch on, and I know our time is escaping us. After all were satisfied from Jesus' supply, the disciples picked up these leftovers, 12 baskets full of the broken pieces. Now, do you think there's significance to this? I do. Jesus doesn't do anything by way of coincidence, right? It's not like Jesus got carried away, just lost track of what he was doing. By the time that everyone had been satisfied, there just happened to be 12 baskets left over. It's interesting that this is actually the one miracle, along with the resurrection, of course, that all four gospel writers recount. It's the only other miracle besides the resurrection. And all of them, all four gospel writers, take time to mention that there are 12 baskets of pieces 
left over. So what is the significance of this? I think first, most obviously, is there are 12 disciples. Jesus has just sent out each of these 12 with his power and authority personally endowed to each one of them. They came back to Jesus and they recounted the things that they had done. And then when Jesus gave them their next ministry opportunity, they started looking around for the things that they didn't have and they said, we have no more than this. And now every single one of them has a basket full of leftovers. What was that that you guys were saying? Something about nothing more? I mean, do you guys think Do you think that they felt kind of dumb at that moment? Of course, Jesus was gracious. He did not, would not mean for them to feel, you know, dumb or silly or anything like that. But I imagine they felt ashamed for their unbelief. So that's the first thing. That's the most obvious. But second thing, the number 12 has great significance in the Bible. You remember that the patriarch Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the Old Testament, the number 12 represents the people of God. I mean, that's rather basic and pretty readily discerned, I think. The number 12 represents the people of God. Then when Jesus comes, he very carefully chooses 12 disciples. And there will be 12 apostles who will become the foundation of the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. That's not a coincidence. That is a deliberate parallel hearkening back to the past. So that in the New Testament also, the number 12 represents the people of God. So what is the significance of the 12 baskets of food? The disciples said, we have this lunch, Jesus. It's all that we have and nothing more. And so in this miracle, Jesus says, no matter how little you have, you have more. No matter how little you ever have, you always have more. That's the message to you and to me. Because we have Christ. Jesus said, you have me. He said, here I have, I have fed these thousands upon thousands full. And here are 12 baskets full besides. Because in me there is always enough and more than enough for all the people of God. In Christ there is enough and always more than enough for all the people of God. And that is the significance of 12. Who are we to say, I have nothing more? Even if you come to the point where you can't rub two pennies together, who are we to say, I have nothing more? Because we have Christ. If you are sharing the gospel with someone and a skeptic comes back to you with difficult questions that you can't answer, and you begin to feel like he has more going for him and he has more in his arguments than what you have, do not believe that he or she has more. You have more because you have Christ. It's never the case that we have 
no more than our earthly supply. So look to Christ. Believe in Christ. And let me ask you again, what change will there be in your life if Jesus helps your unbelief? I mean, who will hear of Christ? Who will be loved in his name? And who will feed on Jesus if Jesus helps your unbelief?